Go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 3 before we jump in there. Let me do a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I want to just say hello to our friends at the Buncombe County Detention Center. As you know, we started an extension there uh, just a couple of months ago, and in the month of July, we'll be starting small groups there. So whichever campus you're on, if you put your hands together and just welcome the folks that are there. Very glad that... Uh, you're part of the Biltmore family, and also would say this, whatever campus you are at, all right, whichever one, in the next five or six weeks, some of it's just like a week or so away, uh, there are what they call starting point dinners or lunches that are coming up. And so whether you're at Hendersonville or Brevard or whether you're at West or wherever, uh, please make sure that you, if you haven't been already, starting point is a way to say, man, is this a good fit for me? Is this, uh, how do I get connected? What about small groups? All that kind of stuff. That is the, uh, that's the place to go. And uh, hey, and parenthetically, this summer, as we kind of emerged from this crazy last year, three of the campuses this summer, we had soft launches during the pandemic, but West and Brevard and Espanol will be having their grand openings during the course of this summer, and so be praying for all of that. A lot of good stuff coming up. And then last uh, but not least, here in about two weeks on Father's Day Sunday, a young man named Tim Tebow will be here, and he will be sharing his testimony, and then he'll be sharing out of God's Word and about God's purpose for both his life and God's purpose for your life. Great, great chance to invite a friend. we got a bunch of coaches coming, got a bunch of teams coming as well. Um, and whichever campus you're at, my only request would be please go to the campus that you normally go to to make sure we have room at all the different places. All right, overflow is sometimes a necessity, but it's not necessarily something you want. And so that's uh, Father's Day present uh, here just coming up in a couple of weeks. All right, so here we are. Everybody, including Tebow, everybody wants to come to Western North Carolina, correct? Everybody wants to either come and visit here, or uh, they, if you were uh, out and about yesterday, either on 40 or 26, uh, you saw a lot of Florida license plates, and you saw a lot of cars, and it, was a, it reminded me everybody, everybody wants to come to Western North Carolina, even f- either for a short amount of time, or they want to move here, all right, and get in on what all of us get to enjoy all the time. And just think about the different places they could come from. All right, this one would be like, you know, this is out in Lubbock, Texas. And those of you that think I'm exaggerating about the terrain in Lubbock, Texas, you've not been to Lubbock, Texas, because that is exactly what Lubbock, Texas looks like. And so 1,304 miles away, they're trying to get to Western North Carolina. They try to get a little bit closer. Anticipation builds a little bit more. And you've got the next one that would be coming up after this, and that would be, there are folks from Florida, 656 miles. If you're here for the summer, Welcome, glad you're here. All right, a little bit closer as well, and this is where you start to see some fun stuff happen. Uh, If you've ever come in from Charlotte or come in from almost any direction, one of the most glorious things is when you see the mountains kind of out in the distance, and you're coming back, and it's 114 degrees coming up, but you come up the mountain, and you see as you get closer to the mountains, the temperature starts to go down, and you're like, brother, I'm home, and that's just, it's awesome. Everybody wants to get here, and then at some point in the journey, this is what you end up eventually getting to see. Welcome to Western North Carolina. We get to live here, all right? We get to live here. It's awesome. And the, the trip here is just filled with anticipation. If you have little kids like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? We're not there yet, but it's getting closer and closer and closer, right? That is in some ways, actually starting, starting in Genesis chapter 3, 
That was like Lubbock, Texas, all right? You're like, man, this is the fall. This is terrible. It's dry. It's dusty. When are we going to get there? When are we going to get there? And for the past, I don't know how many weeks, we've been in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And the question is, man, when are we going to get there? Because throughout the whole journey through the Old Testament, what we've been looking at is we've been seeing signposts over and over. It's like, it's coming. It's, co- it's not here yet, but it's coming. All right, even if you go like to Genesis 3, third chapter in your Bible, you see right off the bat, God promises to the people. It's like there's a serpent crusher who is coming. There's a serpent crusher who is coming. Then you go to the next book and you see the Passover in the book of Exodus. And he's like, listen, put blood over the doorpost. And he's introducing to the people the whole concept of substitution. That you know what? There's going to be a substitute for your sin. This is a small picture, but there's a bigger picture coming. And then you go to the next book and he introduces the sacrificial system. And it's like, you know what? Sacrificial system, this shows how serious our sin is. This is, how, this is how much sin costs. It costs this much, but guess what? I'm emphasizing again the substitutionary aspect that someone else can step into your place. And then throughout the Old Testament, you've got these kings who are terrible kings, most of them, but they're saying there's a better king coming. There's somebody better coming. And then the prophets step out there, and the prophets begin to say things like, you know what? This king that's coming, he will be pierced for our transgressions, which, by the way, when Isaiah said that, that was actually 300 years before crucifixion was even invented by the Persians and 700 years before Jesus even walked this earth. But he says, he is pierced for our transgressions. Our iniquity has been put on him. And then prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. And then last week we looked at Malachi. And in Malachi chapter 4, it says, you know what? The son of righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. And then boom, God goes quiet for 400 years. You see that page right in between Malachi and Matthew? That one page is 400 years, no revelation, no prophet, no direct word from God, just silence. The question is, is God done with us, man? Is God, is like, is God through with dealing with his people? And then the awesome thing we get to see is this right here, is uh, the word of God came to John. 400 years, no word from God. Then the word of God came from John. And then here's what verse 3 says. It says this, and he went into all the region. He's John the Baptist. We'll come to him in a second. And he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of uh, sins. So as we start the journey into the New Testament, the first guy on the scene in all four Gospels is a guy named John the Baptist. All right, now John the Baptist, some don't think it's, John is not like a Baptist, all right? He's not, it's not like Pete the Presbyterian or Mark the Methodist. That's not what it is, all right? It's not, it's the idea of what he did. He was baptizing a ton of people. He was, that was his ministry. That's what he did. But what you got to remember, John the Baptist is like the link. He's the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He like talks and acts like an Old Testament prophet, but he's the bridge between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Man, he's a strange figure. He's an eccentric figure, but he is the one that's preparing people to get ready for Jesus. And uh, all the four Gospels uh, talk about John the Baptist. Now, as we kind of jump into this text, a lot of times people will say, well, how come there are four Gospels anyway? I mean, how about, why don't we just get one, like, just get one of them? And two things. Number one, so, We've explained it like this before. Sometimes, like if you're watching highlights of an event or a sports event and you watch it on different channels, uh, they might show the same game or the same event that's going on, but they might show different highlights, different things. They're like they see this aspect or this touchdown or this block punt or whatever. 
Same game, different vantage points. And in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have got four distinct vantage points all under the inspiration of God. But let me give you a little bit of, let me give you kind of a teaser on how to remember this, okay? So for example, Matthew, Matthew's audience uh, were the Jews primarily. And so what you see in the gospel of Matthew is a whole bunch of stuff about the Old Testament. Now, why would he do that? Because his primary audience knew the Old Testament. They were Jews. And so he was, that's why I like Matthew chapter one starts off with a genealogy. That doesn't mean anything to a non-Jew, but to a Jew, it was everything. And it's like, this is our king. This is our promised Messiah. And so by way of just kind of symbolism, when you think about Matthew, just think, okay, that's about Jesus, the king. All right. That's Jesus, our king. Mark comes at it from a different perspective, and he comes at it from a different, for a different audience, and his audience were primarily Gentile or non-Jew, and also very, very new in their faith. And so when you look at Mark's gospel, for example, it's real quick hitting, all right? One of the big words in Mark's gospel is immediately. It's like immediately Jesus did this, immediately Jesus did this, because he's emphasizing the fact that Jesus did ministry, all right? He was with the people, and so I'll just put there, we just put some hands there, because Mark emphasizes the... He emphasizes the ministry of Jesus. Now, the one we're in today is, is called Luke, all right? Luke was a medical doctor, and so like most medical doctors, and you want this in your medical doctor, he is detailed, all right? He is detailed. He's not just going to throw out a bunch of stuff. He's very, very factual. And so what you see with Luke is he's trying to paint the, you know, he is the, he's the God-man, but he is the perfect human. He is, he's, he is God, but he's also man. And then John... Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John's the eyewitness who's like, this is God in the flesh. That's why John chapter 1 starts off this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what he's saying. So all that being said, John the Baptist is in all four. And we get different perspectives, different little parts to look at that I'll be referring to. But Luke is our primary passage. Again, John the Baptist is, man, he's that guy. He is that guy. He like wore he wore camel he wore camel hair coat. All right. He ate bugs. He ate bugs and honey. He was blunt. He probably had matted hair. Probably drove a Ford F one fifty. Did not drive a Chevy. Probably drove a Ford F one fifty. He's a grizzly Adams persona. He was not about the religious establishment of the day. All right. This was not the preacher in a nice suit who is trying to make niceties so that you can feel good about yourself. This guy is like full court press in your face all the time. So let me just walk through this passage and we're going to look at his message and then we're going to look at how the people responded. And so what I want us to do and like anything is, okay, what did it say then? And then what does it say to me? And so let's walk through the passage. I'll make a few comments and then I'll try to break it down a little bit. Luke chapter uh, 3, verse 7, and again, the first few verses talk about all the background. This is like 29 AD. Again, this is before Jesus' ministry kicks off publicly. Uh, John is Jesus' cousin, and here's here's the way he breaks it out. He said, therefore, the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. You brood of vipers. So again, this is not a seeker sensitive. Uh, let me make you feel good. Three ways to find your best life now. That is not this. This, he basically starts off as like, you're a bunch of snakes, all right? You're a brood of vipers who warns you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. By the way, real quick, even though the crowd had many different people in there, just so you know, the primary people who were there were religious people. 
You look from the other ones and you see a lot of religious leaders, even committees have gone out there to say, hey, I got to check out this guy because John was, John was popular. He was like trending on Twitter. He was the guy that had a lot of big crowds. And so the religious people, they send people out. And so he greets them with you snakes and he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, we're religious. We're Jew, we're Baptist, we're Episcopal, we're whatever. Do not say that. We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, I know you're all right, but you're like, man, he is coming on strong. This sounds like what I hear down at the drum circle, or it has, you know, see, repent or burn. That's what I... John is coming at it very, very strong. And we'll, you're like, well, I want to get to gentle Jesus. We, we will in a second, all right? And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And this is where Luke gives us an aspect that the other ones don't give us as much detail on. And he begins to say, here's what repentance might look like for you. And he answered them and says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. That's just called generosity. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. First one was generosity. This is just called integrity. All right. Don't cheat at work. Don't exaggerate your product. Don't cheat on your taxes. Don't take more than you should take. That's what they were famous for doing. The soldiers came to him and said, and what shall we do? And he said, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. That's called, how do you use your power? Your boss, how do you treat your employees? All of those things. And so uh, as we go there, here is, uh, let's just think about one word. And when I put this word up, you're going to go, wait a minute, we hear this word. Uh, you don't hear it a whole bunch kind of in Christianity in general in the West but it's one I hope if you go to church for any length of time, you and I at least have an understanding of this word. Because this is what the message is. This is what John's message is. John's message is one word, and it's the word repent. John's message is the word uh, repent. Now, I know repent, for some of you that maybe grew up in church, and maybe you got wounded at church, and you're like, Man, all, it, all it comes across as, and in your memory bank, and your PTSD, you're like, that just brings up hellfire and brimstone. Man, I've heard that a thousand times since moving to the mountains. Like, that just brings up hellfire and brimstone to me. And we believe in hellfire and brimstone, but a lot of it's in the way that you say it. Do you say it with a broken heart or do you say it with a boastful heart? That can make all the difference in the world. And what you see here is um, Luke has the most detail, but Matthew says, repent for uh, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Please hear me. If you don't hear anything else, hear this one thing. Repentance is a good thing. Believe me, you want, I want, we need, we need, I need more repentance in my life. You need more repentance in your life. Repentance is a great thing because repentance is where everything begins to change. Repentance is the funnel by which God pours grace and blessings into our lives. Repentance is where regret and shame and remorse are taken care of biblically. So repentance is not a bad thing. Repentance is not what we run away from. And repentance, not surprisingly, is the method in the mouth of every Old Testament prophet. Just think about it in your Bible. If you look at the whole Old Testament, they plagiarize stuff all the time because they all preach the same sermon. 
Now, they did it in different ways, but their whole sermon was, they would say, good morning, take your Bibles and turn to, Jeremiah would say, take your Bible, turn to Jeremiah, and the word for the day is repent. Let's close in prayer. Isaiah, take your Bibles, today's word is repent. Hosea, repent. Even Jonah, repent. All of that would be repentance. And so they had one word over and over and over again. Peter's first sermon in the early church, the first thing was repent, so the times of refreshing may come upon you. And then John comes on the scene, and people are like, man, he is, he is harsh. And he's that guy that kind of gave me the willies, all right? He's kind of harsh. He talks about axes and snakes and fire, and he makes me nervous, all right? He makes me nervous. I want, I want Jesus to come around and just say, it's all okay. I'm okay, and you're okay. Let's just be good. And loved ones, when you look at the Bible, Jesus' first message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, repent, because all that stuff the Old Testament was talking about was about me, and I'm here now. So repent, for the kingdom of God is here. So let me give you a word here. There's a word that is used, and it's almost the only word that's used. Whenever you see the Bible term repent or repentance or repenting, it's some form of this word right here, okay? It's called metanoia, all right? Metanoia. Just so you feel smart today, uh, at the count of three, just say metanoia. One, two, three. Metanoia. All right, you know what that means? That means a change of mind is really what that means. That means I'm changing my mind about God first and then about my sin second. It's not just I feel bad about it, but I have a different attitude toward God than I did before. That's what metanoia is. It's a change in attitude toward God. And so here's where we kind of get into trouble is repenting and believing, because that's what Jesus said in another gospel. He says, repent and believe, repent and believe. Now, let me, I don't, let me go ahead and say this. Repentance and belief in the Bible are two sides of the same coin. If somebody told you you could believe in Jesus and repent later, they told you wrong. Repentance and belief are two sides of the same coin. Heads or tails, it's the same coin. Repentance means I'm changing my mind about who God is. That's repentance. And so repentance and belief go hand in hand or hand in glove. And so when we look at it, let me break it down to two parts of repentance. And it depends on who you are and where you are in your pilgrimage about which one of these applies most to you. The first part of repentance, let's call initial repentance. Initial repentance. We call that, we call that salvation. It's where God shows me my need for him. He shows me my sin. He shows me my emptiness. He shows me that massive void. He shows me that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. It's when you understand that when he says, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they do, that it's that point in time, that moment in time in your life where all of a sudden it dawns on you, the light goes on, the heart is convicted that that counted for me. That wasn't just a historical fact. That was a spiritual reality and it's offered to me as a, as a gift. And then you embrace him. That's called faith. You trust him. It's, the, it's a synonym for that. But you wave the white flag of surrender. 
And we have to repent to get saved. We have to repent of two things. We have to repent of our rebellion. And what is surprising is we have to repent of our religion. Normally we think about repenting of our rebellion. It's like those people out there and these things and these bad deeds. But who he was talking to primarily here? Sure, he was talking to the soldier. Sure, he was talking to the tax collector. Sure, he was talking to the person to be generous. But who he was talking to when he says, you bunch of snakes, is he's talking to religious people. That's why he follows it up and says, don't say we're Jews. Same way, don't say, well, I'm a Baptist or I'm a Catholic or I'm an Episcopal. He says, you and I have to repent, not just of our rebellion against God, we have to repent of our religion. Religion is basically that man-made way that I do something to impress God or to get in right standing with God. Every monotheistic religion around the whole world has that. That is what they say. Chant this, go there, rub this, pray that, obey here. That's all what I do. It's about a teacher telling you a plan on how to get right with God. Jesus, on the other hand, says, you know what? I come and I don't tell you about a teacher. I am the teacher and I am the way. And then I die for you and then offer that to you as a gift. Totally different than religion. So let me put it this way. Uh, when a person comes to Christ, and I was thinking this week about when I came to Christ as a 17-year-old, this happens in some form or fashion to everybody who's a believer. All right, the first thing that happens is to some degree God convicts you. Think about you going down a road. If you're going down a road, conviction is you're going the wrong way. You need to get off at this exit. So you're going down the road. All of a sudden you see an exit and you're like, you know what? I got to get off. And so conviction is the idea that I got to change or this is wrong or I've rebelled against God or my religion ain't making it or I'm not too sexy for my shirt or whatever that is. That's conviction. And so you turn off. Now, what you do then is you have to go over the overpass. And the overpass, you cross over. That's when you realize God's a God of grace. And you see Jesus on the cross. That was not just dying for the sin of mankind. That was my sin that put him on the cross. And you see that in the offers, grace. But the conversion happens when you are convicted and you get off. And then you go over on, you go over on the cross. But then you go the other direction because you're like, I am embracing him by faith. He's not just the Savior. He's my Savior. And as you look at this, uh, a lot of people say, well, Christians sin all the time. And what you have to remember when it comes to repentance, and you have to ask the question, have you repented? And I'll say this a couple of times today. In the South, all right, I'm from the South, so don't look at me that way. In the South, in the South, some degree of the Bible Belt, some degree of cultural Christianity still left. A lot of that is good, but a lot of that is dangerous because what can happen is is you can kind of get inoculated to the real thing. And in the South, what happens sometimes is you think, well, you know what, I prayed a prayer, nothing changed in my life, but I'm going to heaven, I believe in Jesus. Listen to me, friend, if you did not repent, then you really didn't biblically believe. Believe is not just I believe in something out there, it's I believe in something and I put my weight down on that chair. And so for a lot of us, repentance is that initial repentance. And you gotta ask yourself the question, have I repented? And you're like, well, the Bible says assurance of salvation and security of the believer and all that. And I believe all that. And the Bible does teach that for sure. All right. But it also teaches if there is no works attached to that faith, then it's just not really saving faith to begin with. And so you've got, if, if nothing changed when you either prayed a prayer or walked an aisle or got baptized or whatever, I don't know what happened. You just, you just prayed a prayer. Because there's initial repentance 
The second thing, though, that we have to understand as a believer is lifestyle repentance. And this is where we falter. We think repentance is the, uh, man, I should have put a picture up there. Our little, uh, little Elsie Grace, she's learning how to swim. And, man, all right, uh, I'm just cutest ever. I mean, seriously, I can't believe I don't have a picture. But just cutest ever, she's learning how to swim. And so what do you do? You hold her up or you put the little floaties on her, hold her on a little belly. And she made, you know, and it's, it's awesome. And a bunch of other little first-time swimmers are in there and they're learning how to swim. That's the way we think of repentance as Christians. What I want you to think of repentance as is not just something for beginners, all right? There is repentance that is initial repentance, but there's also continuing lifestyle repentance. Listen, you want more repentance as a Christian. You want more. It's the place where you get blessed. Tertullian, who was like a church scholar, church apologist in like 200 AD, he said we were made for nothing but repentance. His point is, as he looks at the Bible, it's like, listen, even as a Christian, repentance is where, I mean, when I change my mind about my sin, that's where the blessing comes in. And as forgiven, adopted sons and daughters of God, God convicts, he shows us where we fail, and then we change by the grace of God. I put the car in the ditch. I put the car in the ditch, but the difference between it is if you know the gospel, you know provision has been made for your sin. So listen to me, Christian. When you and I sin, if you are not saturated in the gospel, our regret and our remorse never morphs into repentance, and we end up buried in our shame, and if we don't deal with our shame, then we just end up getting super legalistic toward other people. And so the whole idea is I want to run back to God as his son, as his daughter, when I fail. Repentance is when Jesus and I disagree, he's right, I'm wrong, and by God's spirit, I will change. That's what repentance is. And so because Jesus has died for my sin, when I fail, when I use language toward my spouse I should not use, when I'm not generous, when I don't do any of those things, when I don't have integrity, what happens is I put the car in the ditch again, Dad. Help me get the car out of the ditch and help me go back on the straight way. That's what repentance is for a believer. And um, just so you know, you're like, how do I know if I've done that? How do I know? Part of it is you know there's some uh, horizontal action going on. What I mean by that is you got the vertical thing going on with God. God, I'm sorry. That was wrong. Man, that was wrong. I'm not, I'm not advertising you well at my school but if you notice the verses like 10, 11, and 12, and 13, John the Baptist is saying your repentance needs to go public as well. He's like, soldiers, stop beating people. Tax collectors, stop stealing from people. Stingy people, stop being stingy with other people. Give them the other coats you've got. You got five of them in the closet, give them one. So what's the point? The point is when we repent, there's often a horizontal aspect to it. So if God's convicting you of a specific area now, there's usually a horizontal application you need to make as a believer. It's like, you know what? i got to stop cheating people at my business. Well, it's just a little bit. Well, are you, if you're a son and daughter of the king, the question is, are you advertising him well? And so you've got initial repentance, but you've got a continuing lifestyle of repentance as well. And you're like, what do I do? What do I do? Uh, ironically or providentially, it's exactly what uh, these people said. So a couple more verses. Go to, uh, yeah, verse 15 here. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John. Now the other, the other three gospels give us a little different insight into this. It's not different, just 
a different perspective, as I said earlier. They actually come to John, and they're like, John, are you Elijah? Are you, uh, are you the one we've been waiting for? Now, this is the part where the temptation for John would have been, because this is all the attention is on John. All the attention is on John. He's getting like thousands of followers on Facebook and Instagram every single day. Everybody's loving him. They're like, are you the one? Are you the one? Are you the one? Are you the one? And he's in a great model for leadership. He's like, man, I'm not even worth, I can't even untie the sandals of the one that's actually coming. Translation, I can't even carry the gym bag of the one that's actually coming. So here's what he says. Next verse. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he is mightier than he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now, we're not going to go into it, but this is, just think back, ancient roads, dirt roads, sandals, animals on those roads, people walking in sandals. You know, I actually found out that a Jew was not ever, no matter how low that person was on the society's stratus, he did not have to wash the feet or the sandals of another Jew because it was that bad of a job. And so what John is saying is here, I don't even qualify for that job. You know, by the way, that is a great picture of humility. This isn't really the sermon today, but what he's saying is this. is like, it'd be great for you to be able to just say, you know what, God loves me, but it's not about me. That would help so much. Quick marriage counseling world here. You're like, I just wanted to come today to hear something about marriage or how to study my Bible. You know what will help your Bible study and what will help your marriage a ton? If you can just say, you know what, God loves me, but it's not about me. It's not about me. As a matter of fact, you're not even the silver medalist. You're like a bronze medalist, all right, Pete? I see those things. I am second. You're not second. You're third. There's a study that said bronze medal winners are some of the most satisfied people. You know why? Because they're like, you know what? If you've got silver, you're like, man, I'm almost there. I almost won. But you're disappointed. If you won bronze, you're like, man, I just barely got in there by the skin of my teeth. I'm happy for what I got. That is a great attitude as a Christian to have. I'm third. God's first. God's first. Other people are second. I'm third. That is one of the most freeing reminders that you can ever say. You know what? It's not about me. So not everybody has to serve me. The green lights don't have to come all in order. My spouse doesn't have to. What happens if he or she burns the dinner? It's okay. It's not about me anyway. It's not about me. It's not about, it's, it's not about me. It's about God. It's about others. And then I'm a distant third. When you study your Bible, Instead of sitting there going, okay, this is about me. It's not about you. It's about God. But when you see that, you're like, I I get to be a part of the story. I get to be somewhere in the story. So John is saying the same thing. I'm not even worthy to unpack his gym bag. uh, But John says, "My, my baptism is symbolic of a bigger baptism. What Jesus would do in a person's life, he says, that's the bigger baptism. And so, real quickly, before we talk about that, a couple of things. In a few verses, Jesus actually gets baptized, which is oftentimes confusing. But you see at least three or four possible reasons. And the Bible doesn't tell us why Jesus got baptized, by the way. Because obviously, he didn't have anything to repent of. He was sinless, so he didn't have anything to repent of. And John's baptism is about a baptism of repentance. So what was Jesus being baptized for? It's a good question. Again, the Bible doesn't tell us specifically, but three or four potential answers would be this. He's giving an example of obedience. All right, he's going to tell us in the Great Commission, you go and you baptize believers. 
He is identifying with us as sinners. Remember, he's, in the, he's going to go in the water, and all these other sinners are going to be, these other sinners are going to be around him, and he's going to be baptized right with these other sinners, just like he did when he died on the cross. He got, baptized, or he got, he, he got crucified between two thieves. Uh, as a matter of fact, John is kind of confused in it as well. He argues a bit because, man, Jesus, I should be being baptized by you. And Jesus is like, no, you're going to baptize me. But also it's a picture of the mission that Jesus' death and resurrection secured. So let's kind of get down to, uh, as we would say in Lubbock, Texas, uh, brass attacks, all right? And you can look up what that means. But it's basically, let's get down to what it really is. Let's be really blunt. What about baptism for us? Because you see this whole thing is filled with John baptizing, and then he baptizes Jesus, and it's mentioned in all four Gospels. So what does baptism have to do with us? What does it have to do with you? What is it about us? Because, again, Jesus obviously made it super, super huge. He practiced this baptism as evidence of your repentance. Again, what's the first thing in the Great Commission? Go and make disciples, and then right off the bat, baptizing them. So let me give you a couple things. Let me give you... four quick ones. First of all, when you're baptized, it publicly announces your repentance. So baptism does. It publicly announces your repentance. When somebody's baptized, what they're saying is, I've repented. I'm on team Jesus now. I'm identifying with Jesus. I'm now his. He is now mine. I've changed direction. He's the boss. Again, when I disagree with Jesus, he's right. I'm wrong. I'm embracing Jesus. So let me say it again. Love, 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 the Bible belt. But if you got baptized and you didn't repent, then all you did was get wet. If, if, if there's no repentance now in your life, then there's reason to doubt that anything happened back then. If there was not a radical change when you came to Christ and then you're like, well, I prayed this prayer, I got baptized, nothing changed all you did is get wet in front of a bunch of people. That's all you did. I'm not trying to cast doubt on that, but the Bible never says to look back at some date 20 years ago for security and assurance that you are a Christ follower. It says, look now at the present day. Am I following him now? And if that's the case, then it's assurance that something actually happened back there. And so what does baptism do? It publicly announces your repentance. All right? It doesn't make you a Christian, it reveals you to be a Christian. The old adage is of the wedding ring right here. This wedding ring right here, it reveals me to be married. It doesn't make me married. All right? If I took this off, all right, I'm still married. But I put it on. Why? Because I'm like, you know what? I'm proud of who I'm married to. I'm proud that I am married. And also want everybody else to know I'm married. All right, I'm married. I want you to know that. I want you to know my wife. I want you to know who that is. In the same way, people are like, well, do I have to get baptized to go to heaven? That's just like a dumb question. It's a dumb question. Why would you want to go to heaven if you're ashamed of Jesus here? That's the question. It's like uh, sometimes when people say, is there anything wrong with me not wearing my wedding ring? You're like, I don't like wearing my wedding ring. Is there anything wrong with that? Anything in the Bible about that? Uh, you're a fool is what that is. You are foolish, all right? And I would just say... Uh, if I came, let me just put that, if I came home, I was like, hey, babe, I just said I'm not going to be wearing my wedding ring for the next couple months. How would that go with you? All right. I'm not going good with, at my house. The reason is, this is a demonstration. I want her to know I'm proud of her. Baptism is that easy, I am proud of Jesus. 
I'm proud I'm on Team Jesus now. I'm not perfect, but I've changed. Second thing is it takes a picture. When people are baptized, it takes a picture. It's a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but also if you look at Romans 6, it's the picture that you died, you were buried, and you were raised to walk in a new way of life. Now, this is not a huge, huge, huge deal, but this is the way we do it. Um, is we submerge people in a tank. You're like, why do y'all do that? Why do y'all do that? Two reasons. Uh, number one, because um, of what it symbolizes. What baptism symbolizes in the Bible is the death going under the water, being buried, being brought to, being raised to walk in a brand new way of life. So what it symbolizes. And then number two, to be blunt, it's, it's, the, what, it's the way they did it in the Bible. It's the way they did it in the Bible. I know you can go to the Greek words and all this kind of stuff, but the easiest way to read stuff is, you know what? That's obviously the way they did it here. John is not standing on the shore with a cup of water uh, pouring it on people's head. You can tell that from the language. He's actually in there baptizing them. Now, let me give you a little secret here. When you see the word baptism in the New Testament scriptures, normally what's going on in the New Testament is called a translation. Translation means they take a Greek word and they put it into an English word. And so that's a translation. That's why you see occasion, like a, let's say, in a, a New American Standard is slightly different than an English Standard Version. It's not because it's right or wrong. It's because they're taking a foreign language and they're putting it into an English language. And if you put it, like, for example, sometimes words are put in opposite language. If they put it exactly the way it is in the Greek, you couldn't even read it in English. All right? It's just the words would be behind each other, so they translated, and they try to stay real close for word for word as far as the translations. When they came to the word baptism, they didn't know how to translate it, so they just chose not to. They did what's called transpose or transliterate. So what they did is they took the word baptism or baptizo and then just put it into the English part of it and said baptism. And here's what baptism means in secular language way back when the Bible was translated. It means to dip, to dunk, to soak, or to submerge. That's what the word means. There's actually parts in old cookbooks way back 2,000 years ago where they were like, take a cucumber and they would baptize it into vinegar to make it a pickle, all right? So they're like, you know what? They didn't sprinkle it. They like submerged it underneath there. And so what it represents, what it represents, and here's the, uh, here's the third thing, is it's done after conversion. This is super important. Baptism is done after you actually repent and embrace Jesus, not before. You're like, why are you saying that? 27 times in the book of Acts, you see baptism as an expression. Sometimes it's a bunch of people, sometimes it's, it's uh, just a family, or sometimes it's just a single person. But 27 out of 27, they get baptized after they get saved. So just a quick flyby that you see in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people, quote, received the word and were baptized. Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch says, hey, see here, there's water. What prevents me from being baptized? If you believe with all your heart, you may. Acts chapter 9, Paul believes and then he gets baptized. Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who believed the word and then they were baptized. Acts chapter 16, Lydia's heart was, quote, open to pay attention to what Paul said, unquote, and then she was baptized. Acts 16, the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And he believed, and then Paul baptized him and everyone else who believed in his house. Acts 19 says, many Corinthians listened to Paul's preaching and believed and then were baptized. That's what, that, that's what you see as the pattern. That's the pattern. 
And so what will happen is, you know, if somebody, maybe you're a connect group teacher, and I guarantee you there's some connect group folks, and like, hey, I'm in your connect group, but I've never been scripturally baptized. And, you know, if, or if somebody leads you to Christ, let's say your friend leads you to Christ. I mean, it'd be awesome. Not only can they be over there while you're getting dunked, and if they're a strong believer, good example, man, they can baptize you as well, all right? You got to be careful, all right? That's, the, you know, you don't want them to hold you under too long. My point is, my point is this, is that that's, that's when you get baptized. Now, some of us struggle with pride. Let me just be blunt. Some of you struggle with pride because you have since received Jesus, but you got baptized early on, maybe at camp at 12 or whatever. Just so you know, my background, I understand where you're coming from. I came to Christ at 17 as a senior in high school. Came to Christ, got discipled strong for like three years. Three years after I became a Christian, I saw the teaching on baptism. After three years, I was leading Bible studies at Texas Tech. I led guys to Christ in Texas Tech. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, yeah, but that's for like, that's for, that's for Elsie Grace. That's, that's like beginning swimming. And the point was, I had to say, you know what? I've been teaching you the blessings of obedience And so I got baptized there three years after I actually came to faith in Christ, but it was not, it was just a matter of swallowing my pride and saying, you know what, I need to obey Jesus. Now, let me just say something about this. Some of us, uh, here's one that's a real deal, and we talk about it anytime I ever come across baptism, is somebody, and you will say, I got baptized as a baby. Okay, I got baptized as a baby. Just so you know, I did too, all right? I did too. I got baptized at six months old. You should have seen me. It was awesome. All right. <laughs> White outfit, hoodie, awesome. And so he said, I got baptized as a baby. Praise God for that. Praise God. Your parents were doing, basically, they were doing something noble. They were saying, we commit to raising this as best we know, because more than likely they got it from their family tradition. More than likely they said, you know what, this is what we know, but we're going to try to raise this child in the faith. But here's what you got to understand. That was your parents' decision, not yours. That was your parents' decision, not yours. But what you really got to understand is by being baptized and following Jesus and doing what he says, you're not negating what they did. You're redeeming what they did. You're putting a stamp on what they did. It's like, this is what you meant. You wanted me to be raised in the church. You wanted me to follow Jesus. And when you get baptized, that's not putting that down. It's ratifying it, actually. It's like, man, that's, that's what they meant, or that's what they meant to mean. And you're like, well, well, how big a deal is it? Well, um, it's a big deal, okay? It's a big deal. All right, here's, here's why I say that. Uh, you're always wanting to ask, what's my next step as a disciple? If you're a Christ follower, what's my next step? For some of you, it's, for some of you, it's I got to get in a small group. For some of you, it's I got to start serving again. For others of you, you're watching online, you're like, man, I got to get back in, in person. For others of you, it's, um, you know, I got to share my faith with people at work. Or you're, you're trying to take that next step. But for a lot of folks, it doesn't matter which campus you're at, but for a lot of folks, it's, you know what, I need to be baptized. If you're a follower of Christ, and you have not been scripturally baptized like we just looked at, then your next step, your next step in your journey is to be baptized, all right? Not next year, not next month, all right? As soon as you possibly can. Put it this way, there is no comprehension in the New Testament of an unbaptized believer in Jesus. There's just not. 
You can't find somebody that's walking around like, oh, I'm going to get to that someday. That was almost synonymous with being a Christ follower. It's like a flag that you put in the ground to say, you know what? Boom, I am on Team Jesus now. And you look at this little card that you all had in your seat, or if you're watching online, you've got it there uh, online, or Christian's going to tell you some things about how to do that. But you look at this little card, and you're like, this is kind of flimsy. It's just not, it's not, even, it's not even real substantial. But think about it like this. It's, it's, like a, it's like a diving board. This thing is like a diving board for so many of us here. This is a diving board. I mean, how is God going to do other stuff in your life if we won't even do this one small thing? So it's like a diving board. You know what? I'm going to jump on this, and I'm a little scared. I'm not sure what to do. But you're taking a step of faith. Now, obviously, the first thing is, do you know Jesus? Have you said, you know what? What you did on that cross counted for me. And I'm now turning from my way of trying to make life work, and I'm embracing you. You can tell them that right there in your seat. For many of us, you have done that already as well, but you've never followed through with baptism after that. Now, you've got all sorts of excuses, and I won't get my hair wet, or blah, 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 blah. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make it as easy as I can. This little card, two things you can do. Number one is just put your name, put your uh, either email or cell phone, whatever is the easiest way to get a hold of you. And then on your way out of whatever campus you're on, just put it in a bucket that is uh, right outside the doors. Somebody this week will take that little bit of information and contact you, whether it be email or text or whatever, and start setting that up, all right? It's not just, again, it's not next year, and I know, that, I know this, I've been doing this a long time. Some of you, God's challenged you in this before. Some of you, a year ago when we talked about this, you're like, oh, I need to, but I won't. There's a point in time where God's voice starts to be harder and harder to detect the more and more you just push him off. So please, please, you're like, I want God to work in my marriage and I want him to work in my kids. Loved one, he wants to work in you. You never know how he's going to use this. You're like, I got a prodigal. Maybe, just maybe, God's trying to get his prodigal, that is you, and when you obey and you come home, guess what? That trickles down to your family. And so I'm going to pray in a minute and just doesn't take 15 seconds. You're going to fill this out and then just drop it in a bucket. If you don't need to fill this out, you'd be praying for those people. I promise you there's people on your row that need this and like, man, this is the springboard. A lot of stuff is going to come in. They're like, ah, you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't do it. You should do it. This is a springboard to what God wants to do in your life. I'll just give this last thing. Depending on what service you're looking at, some of you actually need to after the service, go up to a pastor. We're going to have pastors here at the front after the service. All right, this is not spontaneous baptism. We're going to go for the next hour and baptize people. But for some of you, are like, you know what? I've been putting this off long enough. I have put this off and put this off and put this off. It is time for me to simply obey God. And after this service, when everybody else is going out that door, going out the side door and putting their cards in the bucket and all that kind of stuff, you just come up and you talk to a pastor. And there's going to be a handful of pastors at every campus that can have a big thing on that says pastor, something that identifies them. And you need to get baptized the next service. That's what you need to do. You're like, I didn't bring any clothes. We got some for you. I didn't bring a towel. We got some for you. I didn't bring any hairspray. We got some for you on that too. I didn't bring, my friends, what are they going to, they're going to wait. If they're a real friend, they're going to wait. We'll do it early in the next service, okay? So I'm going to pray, and um, then we'll be close to being done. Father, thanks for grace. Thanks for a guy like John the Baptist who was just 
blunt as can be. Thanks for loving us enough to talk bluntly to us. I want to pray for the men and women who are listening. I want to pray so, so much that today would be that jumping off point, that springboard into all that you have for their lives. Got to pray for the nervousness and the, I'm not sure I should do this and the fear. <clears throat> Got to pray that you would just uh, give them the spiritual courage, the spiritual faith to just say, you know what? I'm going to take this next step in my discipleship journey. I'm going to obey the Lord as best I know how, and I'm going to leave the results up to him. So give them courage, give them grace, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.